Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today, my guest is percussionist and drummer Jim Brock. Jim has proven to be an innovator in the world of drums and percussion. Within his 45-plus year career, he has appeared on literally hundreds of recordings with artists such as Joe Walsh, Amy Ray, Joan Baez, Kathy Matea, Joe Cocker, Janice Ian, River Phoenix, and James McMurtry. With five solo records and a DVD entitled The Nature of Drumming, Jim has traveled the world extensively with performances on The Tonight Show, A Prairie Home Companion, Good Morning America, MTV, and multiple appearances on The View, just to name a few. Among these include a concert at the White House for President Clinton in 2000. In 2007, Jim was asked to compose the music for the documentary The Spirit of Sacagawea. For this work, he is the recipient of the prestigious Telly Award and was nominated for an Emmy Award in the category of Composer and Arranger. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash workingdrummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So before we get started, I want to give a big thank you to our friend, Lee Kelly. Uh, Lee has always been a supporter of what we've started here on the podcast. He was a guest early on, and he recommended Jim as a guest on the show. And I just love the perspective that Jim has with his approach to percussion and music and life and everything. And I love how the ideas that Jim talks about is so applicable to a lot of us that are doing some percussion on the side from our regular drum set duties. But here's a real master, a real pro, and talks about things that are so applicable and accessible to those of us that aren't quote-unquote percussionists. So Again, uh, thanks to Lee Kelly for introducing me to Jim, and thanks to Jim for his time, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jim Brock. small town south of Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up. <laughs> Boy, did I. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how small the world is. So there's a small town that a lot of people don't know, but it's one of the longest names in America called Washington yeah. Courthouse. Yeah, I think it's the second, 
longest name. The first one is International Falls, Minnesota. But wow. so I think Courthouse comes second to that. Yeah. Yeah. I read somewhere. But so I think my dad moved there when he was like three or four. And uh, so my grandparents were there and uh, lots of weekends driving down there, hanging out with them, spending time with them. Uh, my only living grandparents growing up. So we spent a lot of time in Washington Courthouse and and knew it well. Uh, and um, my dad actually moved back there after he got remarried to his high school sweetheart. My grandfather ran the Penny's store downtown. That's incredible. Yeah. So I can still see it in my head, you know. Just the serendipity oh, of it all. I find it amazing, mm-hmm. really. But what I find interesting, and hopefully our, our listeners will, will can relate to this, is that here you are uh, growing up in a small town, and then when you look at the arc of your career, the people that you've worked with, the things that you've done in the, in the industry, that I know that a lot of us relate to as far as, man, I, I'm, I'm in this place in the world, I'm in this town, wherever— uh, but I want to get involved in the industry. I want to. I want to play more. I want to play at a professional level. I want to do this stuff. So that's what I, I, I think is so relatable to 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 the arc of of your story. And then and then also uh, uh, to bookend that, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that Charlotte is where you made your home, and as as great of a city as it is, it's not known as a hub for mm. music. Right. So I'd like to connect the dots, you know, for, for yeah. anyone. I, I guess just kind of starting out, you know, what was your introduction to music, to percussion, to drums in general? You know, I was uh, I was really, really young, and television was about it for me as far as seeing a drummer, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I was maybe 10 years old or something, and I, my folks... And I went to the county fair, and they had a band playing, and I, I still remember their name. It's Ivan and the Sabers, and they were probably from Columbus or you know yeah. something. And so I got to experience it live, and that did it for me. You know? Wow! And I said to myself, "That's me," and uh, I never looked back on it, not once. And uh, the percussion thing came a little later on. There was a guy a few, a few years older than me that lived uh, in that area, and he was incredible. His name was Bob Thompson, and he had all the percussion stuff. Mm. And he's the first guy I ever saw that would mix the two, mix the drum set and the percussion is in one kit and so he could play many things together you know and uh so i got to see these instruments and touch these instruments and and uh and that really opened up a whole bigger world for me okay because percussion is an endless world and is compared to drum set and was he a teacher or a mentor, just somebody you knew? No, he uh, he was a farmer. And, you know, his family raised uh, horses and, and uh, hmm. you know, kind of lived. He lived in an underground house that he built and 
he was a and he was also a painter and an artist and uh, and he was kind of connected to um, a college that was uh, around there and uh, in Silver Spring I think it was in Silver Spring I can't remember uh, is that close so to it, is that close to Antioch? Antioch, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, a lot of people know, well, local people here in Nashville they know they know Antioch as something. But growing up in Columbus, Ohio, Antioch was like the Asheville of Ohio. Right. You right. know, uh, Dave Chappelle spent some time there growing up, but uh, more importantly, it was a place where a lot of, there was an artist community, there was a university there, there was a lot of creativity coming out of there. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So, you know, that brought certain things that he could get involved in, and and uh, but he was just incredible, you know. He sadly passed away maybe three, four years ago. Okay. And, um, uh, you know, he really opened up this huge world for me. And, um, I, I don't see it being an accident, you know. How old were you at this time? Oh, I guess I was 20, 21 years old or so. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, their experience with you know their, their first connection with uh, maybe a, a drum set or a, a mentor would be you know typically thirteen, fourteen years old. Uh, so just uh, that was that was great that that made such an impression on you at that at that point in in life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also showed me that a drum set is uh, it's not one thing; it's made up of different instruments. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people don't look at the drum set that way, but you know, I had to after being around him. <laughs> it made total sense. <laughs> so a lot of us learn multi percussion, uh, even ethnic styles on the drum set uh, at a very kind of base level. We're taught, say, um, Brazilian grooves or other type of Afro-Cuban grooves um, out of a, out of a book or from a teacher, and you know, all well-intentioned. Especially, you know, it's kind of speaking from you know, mostly Americans and the, kind of the Western world to round out our education. But we said, okay, learn this bossa groove and the samba grooves, and you'll be set to play every Brazilian thing for the rest of your life or every Afro-Cuban thing for the rest of your life. Be good to go. And then when you dig deeper, you discover how complex and how much more there is to these styles of music um, and in the the history and and things like that. And you realize it's so much more than what you learned. uh, And and you hear it in the masters. Uh, You hear it... Uh, Trilock or uh, Ayrton Moreira or some of these other right. people uh, that that really understand or, or grew up in it. So as someone that grew up in America, in a small farming community, how did you come about to understand these varieties of styles uh, that you were called upon to play 
And I mean, we're talking about styles that involve instruments like frame drums, tambourine, conga, all these different yeah. things um, that, um, sorry to keep rambling, but I mean, but, but, but any, take any one of these instruments that has a history longer than the drum set, how does one go about like understanding things in, in, at such a level that you're able to kind of employ that at any time? Take, for instance, the samba on the on drum set. Yeah. Um, the kick is, you know, uh, tukan, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Well, that imitates the pandero. Yeah. And so when you know that, then you explore the pandero. Uh. And I always tell people that to me, the most complex instrument is the tambourine because every culture has one and it's played completely different. You know, here in the United States, we're known to take the head off and shake it. Yeah. So it's not a tambourine anymore. Tambour means drum, right? So it's not that anymore. It's a jingle ring. It's a jingle <laughs> ring, yeah. And it has its, of course, it has its place. Yeah. You know, but uh, for me, there used to be this thing called record stores. <laughs> and, of course, you know, it's long before YouTube, you know, and the Internet and stuff. So I would, uh, you know, Brazilian music, I discovered it in the early 70s. And... Uh, of course, Ayrto is my my guy, you know? Yeah. And so I explored all of those different rhythms, and, and I couldn't see how anybody was playing what I was hearing from the records that I bought. Mm. Uh, so I just had to figure it out that way, you know? What is he doing? How is he doing that, you know? And because back then, to search out videos was really difficult. Mm -hmm. but record stores always had a great international section. And so I would buy these records and go home and listen to them and try to figure out what they were doing. And, uh, and that also helped me develop my own voice within it. Okay. Within that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. because there was nothing, uh, I couldn't see it, so I couldn't copy it. You know, I had to, it was the sound and the feel that I was trying to copy. Mm -hmm. But you find your own voice when that way. Right, know? right. Sometimes I think YouTube hurts a lot of younger players that are trying to come up. You know, they, because of the internet, they, they, tend to copy someone else's voice in it instead of finding their own. You know? So if somebody says, this is, uh, this is how you play the Doombeck, they uh, are showing their style, their technique, and it may be close, it may advance the person's uh, ability, but it's not teaching them their, how to uh, attain their own voice or approach to it the way you did. Right. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And and now with technology, everyone has access to gear that presents uh, a quality of instruction that is on par with 
the DCI videos we grew up, you know, some of us grew up with in the, you know, 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. I'm showing my age, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure I got your beat. <laughs> <laughs> and this seems to be a common theme for, I think, a lot of players that grew up without this visual element. There's a, uh, a listening component that I... You know, I, I kind of get the impression it gets lost and it with the uh, advent of, of the Internet and the ability to watch everything on YouTube is that that skill, that um, sense is somewhat lost in the mix where you have to use your ears. You have to be very discerning about what it is that you're listening to. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I see it as, you know, of course, l the learning and everything and trying to find yourself is, of course, a journey that you need to take. And, it, and it's almost like the videos and the Internet and YouTube and all that stuff. You're cheating and you're taking the bus. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and there might be something lost in that, that the speed of that. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, let me ask you, uh, the, a lot of us, again, like I said, we, we, we say our, our if our starting point is the drum set and then we become interested in more percussion and we want to explore that universe where we go on to higher education and then spend time with mallets and ethnic percussion of all sorts, uh, we learn some of these patterns, then we take them with us into the professional world. And I have found some uh, from time to time, and hopefully other people can relate to this, is somebody says, hey, man, can you put a conga part on this track? And so you're like, you're thinking, oh, what? what yeah, I, I think I can. I learned slap. I, I learned tone. I learned all these things. And I know some patterns. And then you start playing a pattern, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And if you're doing a singer-songwriter type of gig... You're not doing a Latin gig. You're not doing a Brazilian gig. You're doing a singer-songwriter gig, and they're wanting this voice on their song or their track. You have to think outside of those traditional patterns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens to me just about every time I have to lay a conga track on a, on a pop song. Uh, you want to stay away as best you can from the basic tune bow because it it it's can be a little too latin for what the song is yeah so you have to play around the drummer and i never put a slap where the snare is you know because the two are going to flam and it's you know it's just not and it'll make the snare sound funny yeah you know so i always leave that that's one beat, like a two and four. That's the one I do not play. Yeah. That's the one hit that I do not play. That's and amazing. I love that, yeah. Are there other examples of other instruments that have certain traditional patterns that maybe some of us might be familiar with? Maybe on a tambourine or something like that that you can cite as, as examples of, of moving around or an approach, a non-traditional approach that you've you find yourself doing often? Uh, yeah. If, um, if I just 
have tambourine hits. Uh, sometimes they want to be with the snare drum mm -hmm. to kind of emulate the old Motown kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Or the uh, Phil Spector kind of kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I may do that on the four or the two, and depending on the song, of course, and uh, and I might do the hit an eighth note before the actual hit. Yeah. So, one, two, uh, one, two, two, uh, mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those little things. Those you're you're doing a you're you're being hired not only to perform, but you're hired to for your ranging ideas. Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't know about percussion that much. So, if they're handing out charts for everybody, you don't have one. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's true. I get that. You know, and uh, so I just try to support to make make it move make the track move a certain way you yeah. know sometimes it needs more motion sometimes it doesn't and you know when the bridge comes around i'll add something new to the mix okay you know to perk your ear up and then maybe take it away you know and then if i do that like in the bridge whatever it would be just say a cowbell quarter inch, for instance, right? Then I'll bring it back in at the toward the end, like yeah. the outro, or something, or the last chorus when 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 the tune is supposed to be its largest. Yeah, okay, sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And yeah. I have just all those ideas, this understanding of the of arrangement, understanding of. The arc of a song, not to overuse that word, but still, that seems like what you're being hired for. And, uh, and, and, and you're, I mean, do you feel like you're kind of off the hook because no one really understands what it is that you're doing? And they're like, just, man, Jim, just go in and do your thing. Well, yeah, you know, and sometimes I'll give them a little more than I think it needs just so they have, they can, you know, bring things in or, or take things out or, you know, right, right, right. Or, or give them a say, well, you know, that all feels good to me, but let me give you this other thing and you can use it or not. You know? Right, 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 right. Is anyone using terminology or like descriptors to get you to do a certain thing? Like maybe they're they're not going to really understand maybe a term like tumbao or something like that, or or use the you know use the quinta or whatever. You know the, they're they're right. going they're going to say well this this needs to be you know just have an organic thing or have you know kind of using or a dry sound. I mean I don't know what 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 kind of things are you hearing in the studio from songwriters, producers, and other things, and, and, and how are you connecting the dots with those crazy words? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of funny how congas can be called bongo. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All the muggles and civilians out there calling everything bongo. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's an age group thing, too, you know. Older people will say, I like those tom-toms. 
know. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you know how to play some trap set? Uh, that kind yeah. of. Thing. <laughs> no, seriously, that's kind of one of my questions, and uh, um, uh, is uh, you know what is it with everyone calling congas bongos or even anything you know? And if I carry a conga drum in somewhere, you know, there's the bongo guy. There's, <laughs> there's the bongo guy. That's amazing. I'm, I'm guessing you're not taking everything in your arsenal to a session. But you're like, well, here's the foundation of what I need to bring. Like, what is it that you can, you are not leaving the house without? Uh, the fundamental stuff, you know. Okay. Congas, bongos, uh, maybe one timbali that I'll put, that I'll play with my hand, you know, while I'm playing the conga, you know. And, and, uh, of course my hands were suffering from years of that, but, uh, timbales are, you know, hard on the hands for sure to get the sound, but it does sound like I'm hitting them with sticks. Interesting. And, yeah. Especially once they compress, you know, the congas to get, you know, hit definition you know and uh, oh you know in a wide variety of shakers and and I've got weird stuff you know I've I've got a vegetable steamer that I use a lot for certain things and you know a couple of different bowls that I use and yeah. uh, you know I've got one bowl that you know, if you play the bottom of it, uh, it sounds similar to a triangle, but it's a little bolder and a little stronger than a triangle. That's amazing. And sometimes uh, I won't have something that I hear, so I just walk around the place and I'll find something. Yeah. You know, I'll find an object or a you know, an ashtray or a garbage can or something, you know, and with enough, enough duct tape, you can make it into anything. Oh, I, I, I hear you. My wife got me this. It's a, uh, I'm, I'm showing, oh, yeah. showing you this, this, uh, um, Tibetan bowl. A meditative bowl. I ended up using it on a track. The lyric was, and the church bell rings, and it was a quiet part, and I was playing brushes on, on the song, but the lyrics were church bell rings, and I just at the right spot hit it, and it was like, it was like a, it was like a, it was a, a triplet-based song, and I, I threw it on the track on the upbeat of the triplet. I just thought it, it just created this one-hit-type syncopation feel. And it was a remote recording, and when I sent it to the producer, he, of course, moved it to the downbeat. I'm like, no, no, you can't. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, um, that's a little side tangent, but uh, I do have a question about kind of being creative with what's around you uh, percussive-wise that maybe people are just now discovering or haven't considered yet, and uh, I'm curious to know, recording with Joe Walsh, what happened in that 
staying on on that topic of just playing random things, non-percussive things on a track. You did yeah. a, you did did some recording with Joe Walsh. Could you tell us a story about about that? Yeah, there was a uh, across the street from the studio was a Salvation Army thrift store, <laughs> <laughs> and you know he's hearing something in his head, so he goes over there and fills up a garbage bag full of stuff, you know, <laughs> stuff, and uh, kitchen utensils or you name it, and uh, and he comes back over and he comes walks over to me and he turns the bag upside down and it all falls on the floor and he goes, here, play this. That's <laughs> <laughs> sweet, okay. Do you remember what record this was that... Yeah, it's the one where he ran for president, and he actually did. Wow. Uh, officially, yes. Yeah. Uh, Songs for a Dying Planet was the name of the record. Okay, okay. Yeah, that we need to include something. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. in the first day about 10 in the morning and he didn't have any songs right so he put his guitar on and he's he's just kind of strumming around walking around the studio and he would find uh, a lick that he liked mm-hmm. that sparked him right and then we would spend all day working this thing up, working this tune up. Mm-hmm. And and then when we had it, when we got it, and it was ready to record, Bill Simsick, of course, was the engineer. And, and it, of course, it was uh, two-inch. Yeah. And, uh, which is my favorite, you know. Yeah, of course. Because it just sounds so much better. And uh, it makes you decide things because you have to. There's no undo button. You know, you have to make decisions. Yes. Two inch take. And um, we'd record it three times. He'd take that reel off, put another reel on. Uh, we'd record it three more times because you can get about three songs on a reel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the third reel, same thing. So we had nine takes, mm-hmm. and then Bill would take those nine takes and make one out of it. Yeah. Make the song out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that every day. That's amazing. What what year was this? Uh, 92. Okay. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. But still before uh, digital recording was commonplace. And I just, I love that idea that, that you had to pay attention. And, and I think 
with the ability to just do quick edits and and you know <laughs> quick editing uh, in digital software. It it I I mean it 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 allows for more options, but at the same time, maybe it allows for complacency as well in performance. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just did a record last December to Two Inch in, in Nashville okay. at Sound Emporium. Yeah. For Amy Ray. Right. And, yeah. And uh, she loves going live to tape, you know. And the whole thing was completely live. String section was live. The horns were live, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it's... Uh, even though the engineers and stuff are very, very good, I see them, I see they're a little scared of tape. Mm. You know, uh, like I've punched in drum kits for years on two inch. Okay. But, you know, it's just like they haven't done it all that much, you know. Mm -hmm. They're, even though they're good at it, but they're still a little weary of it, you know. So these guys are using those those big control. But I don't even know what the name of them are. But I mean, when I first started recording, there was no digital recording, and the guys were finding that spot to punch, and then they had to be almost the you know the extra musician in in the room where they had to know when to kind of pop their hands off the the yeah. buttons and hit make sure it was recording, and and it had to be right at a certain point and. Uh, with drum sets and all the other sounds uh, and uh, that are involved, uh, cymbals dying out, toms ringing, you have to know exactly where to hit record and where to stop. Oh, yeah, and when to come out of record, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Coming out is a little harder than going in. Okay. You know, because of things like cymbal. Yes. You know. Mm-hmm symbols and things like that. Uh, but it's not impossible by any means. You may have to go in sooner than the, the thing that you're trying to fix. You may have to punch in a little sooner or a little later, you know. Okay. You may have to go all the way to a Hole, in other words, right, to come out, right, know. right, right. Find a spot. Well, and 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 I think that a lot of us are learning more and more about that uh, as we're in in the at the point where to, where a lot of us are recording from home. So we're all learning a little bit more about uh, edit points and different things like that. If we're using multiple takes and different things like that. But again, uh, you know, when I first started recording. Uh, the drums had to be put down from beginning to end. That was supposed. That was the take. That we, you had to learn to perform the whole take uh, without a mistake or without a noticeable mistake <laughs> um, before well, they could move on. Yeah, but the thing is, is that okay? If you make a mistake, um, then it's already screwed up. So, trying to punch it, mm-hmm. you know, is, is why not? Because it's already messed up. So, who knows? 
you may fix it. <laughs> you yeah, know, you, yeah, right. And, uh, you know, and but back when when tape was all there was, uh, there was never a question about about it. You know, sure, let's do it. You know. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. So, what's your understanding of mic placement when you're working with these instruments? Whether it's something stationary, like a timbale, or uh, something that you're holding in your hand and and playing, how how important is that? I'm, I'm imagining there's there's like some understanding of, say, you've got a frame drum, and it's like, man, if I get really close to this you know, 421 or whatever I've got on this instrument, it's right. going to, it's going to resonate at a certain frequency, but I yeah. want to, I want a brighter tone. I'm going to back away from the microphone. So some of those basic microphone placement principles, uh, come into play. Is, is there, uh, do you have an, uh, uh, have you needed a broad understanding of those things? Uh, or are you just taking direction well, from an engineer? After, after so so long you you uh, learn that uh, one thing I try to do in a situation like that is when I can I want to sit okay so that, so that makes me stationary so then you know it's the you you move the mic farther away or closer or, or whatever but you're the same so if I was standing, I might, without even thinking about it, take a step backwards. Yeah, or, yeah. Or get too close or something. So That's great advice, especially if you're playing something only on the choruses and they're running the song down, maybe someone else is doing a full pass. So you have to sit quietly during the verse and then you're coming back in with that tambourine. And if you're standing, you could, you know, I guess look, you know, look over in the control room or something and then be in a different place. And depending on the gain structure of the microphone, it could affect the volume of the tambourine from chorus one to chorus two. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, it's like, uh, times when I'm doing the engineering, if some, somebody's playing an acoustic guitar, I want them to sit for that reason, yeah. you know, because a lot of times, you know, they'll get into it and they're kind of all over the map, farther away, closer, you know, and so you get that sound shift all the time. But if they're sitting, you don't get that, you know. Right, right, right. And of course, some people don't like that. They want to stand, but I talk them into it. <laughs> <laughs> um. <clears throat> I was just thinking back, and I, I, I felt like we, we talked a little bit about your understanding of ethnic styles and, and, and learning uh, through listening, um, but I, I don't feel like we've gone far enough to kind of really understand what somebody needs to do to better understand uh, how to really play a frame drum, a... Um, a tambourine, all the different styles. What would be your advice for somebody that wants to dig a little bit deeper into some of these things that you're talking about? Um, well, you know, now that there is YouTube, you can just about 
find anything. Sure. You know? um, but when I learned to play frame drum, I didn't have that. And uh, But I knew who some of the drummers were, so I would find their records, you know. Okay. And, uh, you know, and uh, I did take one lesson with Glenn Velez once when I was in New York working. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I didn't take it on frame drum. I took it on Pandero. Nice. Which is a frame drum. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. you know. But it's not the playing that I wanted to learn. I just wanted to sit around with him and see how he approached things and how he held his drums. And, and that's the stuff that I wanted to learn. It was, I wanted to see how he loves what he does. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do have a rub off on me you know? yeah yeah i think there's a there's a i think there's a lot to take away from just being in the same space as someone working in and creating yeah you know just watching him take the drum off the wall or you know how he held it and you know just how he approaches what he does that's what i want him to be around mm -hmm. yeah I, lo I love that yeah thank you thank you for that uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about is some percussion hacks, some things that have worked well, and, and we keep coming back to the recording end of it. Uh, but it, let me tell you kind of what I'm what I'm what I'm talking about, and some things that I've picked up in recent years that have that have worked really well when recording. Two things, and maybe you can, and then this will launch into some ideas that you've got is. I've got this 18-inch Remo djembe that I've got set down kind of like a kick drum, so if I need it, I can play it with my foot. But I've got a towel that lays over the head, and I can play it with a mallet, a broom uh, stick, those, those broom handle sticks. And yeah. I get, and I've got it, I mic it up kind of like a, a tom, and I use a subwoofer on it, and I get this, like a serdu, like a really beautiful low tone from it right so that's one of my hacks that i use when i'm overdubbing percussion or doing things acoustically and i've even used it live the second thing that i that i've learned from uh picked up from a former guest steve gould was he take he took a an ocean drum cut the uh top head out of a just a snare head took the rim off or no 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 took the took the the, a drum head, a 14-inch drum head, and just squeezed it on the uh, uh, the top of a rain drum, and then so it had it had some uh, some durability, and then would play brushes and and blastics and other types of things on it to get this really organic snare drum. I did a version of that. I, I've got a 15-inch snare drum. I, I record all the time. I put that 14-inch rain drum on that snare drum and I get the sound of the beads inside, the sound of right. the snare drum inside. Uh, I've got a, uh, a snare head that's that I've gaffed on top of it to kind of give it some durability, uh, similar to Steve's, and I play it with brushes and I get this really big, fat note. So th those are two examples of 
of what I've picked up of percussion hacks that I keep coming back to and gives me a palette and a sound that uh, I know that uh, uh, the, 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 the songwriter or the, the producer is not used to, and they know that I've, I've got that. Are there, do you have any examples of something that's used in a non-traditional way or maybe a, a Frankenstein instrument that you've created? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the bowl. Yeah, uh, I will be playing one tomorrow night, actually. Uh, <clears throat> I do this gig on Wednesdays when I, when I can. Uh, with this uh, acoustic guitar player. His name is Jeremy Shaw. And <clears throat> I sit on a cajon, and I've got a special beater on my pedal. So it... it it's made out of leather and and it's real soft and and it sounds like the palm of your hand basically. Okay. And of course, I play I play the pedal with my heel. You know, I mean, they make the pedals where you you know special pedals and stuff. That's cheating to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I had a low hat built for me. The symbols are probably, I don't know, 10 inches or a foot off the ground. You know, it's not to be played. It's only played with the foot, you know. Like a sock symbol, the early versions of those. Yeah. 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 And then I use, uh, it's a 12-inch pandero for the snare. Mm -hmm. And I've I've got the head choked down with, uh, you know, a piece of tape and a rag, you know, mm-hmm. off to the side. And um, and I play it with um, those Promark uh, broomsticks. Yeah. You know, which I love those brushes. Yeah, they're a secret weapon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, amazing. And you smack that Pandora with that, and it's just the greatest snare sound in the world. It's really thick, and it's deep. And it's just musical as can be, you know. And the thing about those broomsticks, and I, I did this with the track of a couple weeks ago on that djembe when I was looking for what to strike the drum with. To but I wanted that low, just that low sound. But I just didn't want a sub wolf sound. I wanted something to give it an attack, an edge to it. And that broomstick gave me that little bit of. With the microphone on the striking head, on the batter side, it gave me that almost snare because of the bristles of the brush, the yeah. broom, gives you that snare uh, touch. Gives you that little, that just that touch of top end, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and and uh, when I hit it, uh, I used the whole brush, not just the tip. Mm-hmm. It's full on the length of the brush, flap. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh, it just sounds wonderful. You know. That's amazing. That's amazing. So it's a bit of a hack. You know, you're you're using it. You're not using it in the t- in the traditional way, but 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 some of these different things that that you've experimented with and 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 come across and and uh, I imagine people love it. 
Yeah, because the reason I like play that with him is because a regular snare drum sounds awful <laughs> in that situation. And sometimes I used to turn the snares off, which was better, you know, but you, you, you can't use a traditional kick drum because there's no bass player. So you miss, you miss the fact that, you know, there's no bass. So, right. right. <laughs> so with this little ensemble thing that I've got going on, uh, it's to me, it's perfect. You don't mm -hmm. miss anything not being there and you, you get all of the right stuff to make the tunes move the way they should and dynamically and whatever, you know. And it's just a duo acoustic guitar yeah. and you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, you know, he loops a lot. He's real good at it. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. That's you awesome. Know? Yeah, yeah, to explore that. Uh, tell me about why Charlotte. Like, what, you know, you were living in Washington Courthouse... What drove you to, to Charlotte? I can only guess what drove you out of Washington Courthouse, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's called snow. Snow. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, so t I, that's an amazing story, too. I heard that story about you, you was the two winners back-to-back -back in the middle of the farm country in Washington Courthouse. Yeah, it almost, almost killed me. Yeah, that's amazing. Can so you I tell us some about that, that... Yeah, I was living in this big farmhouse that was set in the middle of 88 acres of cornfield. In the wintertime, of course, there were no trees because it's farmland. Right? Yeah. And uh, so I didn't have, I had a pump. I didn't have running water. I had electricity, but I didn't have running water. I had an outhouse. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, a wood stove. Mm -hmm. and that second blizzard hit and I couldn't get out because I was back a lane I could not get out nobody could get to me and the National Guard came because uh, a tank was the only thing that could get through the snow that's amazing and you know in the in the in the country, a fence is about five feet high. Well, you didn't see any fences. So I ran out of everything. I was burning furniture to try to stay warm. And and, uh, and I thought, you know, I was writing help in the snow, trying to, you know, see if they would, the helicopters would see it and stop. But they never did. Wow. And uh, so then when the snow got hard enough that you could walk on top of it, I looked out the window and I saw two of my friends walking over to the house to see if I was still alive, you know. And they, they got me out of there. So I go, okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when the spring fall came and I could you know, get my car out and everything. Uh, I had friends in here in Charlotte and 
they were musicians and they wanted me to come play. So I did. You know, I, I built a plywood top on my uh, 64 Dodge pickup, <laughs> loaded it full of everything that I could take and, and uh, moved here. And um, it's the best thing I ever did, really, you know. Now, of course, when I got here, the band had broken up. So I was, you know, stuck without a job. So I, uh, I took a job as an auto mechanic because my dad was an auto mechanic. And I grew up in a shop, so I knew how to do all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, and then I was, you know, I'd stick my name up in the in the local music stores and stuff like that. And, and uh, then I get called for this band that worked a lot. And uh, I remember uh, I was uh, putting brakes on somebody's car, and and I said, "This is it for me." If I don't pick my neck out, you know, I, I'm never going to do it. So when I got done, I just laid my tools down and walked out, left my tools there, just walked out, and and I haven't had another job since. Wow. And that was, what, 78, I think. Wow. And, uh... Well, where did you so, go from there? I mean, <laughs> working with, like, Joe Walsh and 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 then eventually you know Kathy Matea and and Janice Ian. I mean, what what was the direction of going from putting on breaks to getting on some of these tours and records? Well, not, it's not so much this way these days, but back then in the eighties and nineties and stuff. Charlotte was a major recording place. Mm. You know, three or four great studios. And I mean, it's, it's amazing who is recorded here. There's, it's not there any longer. It's law offices now, but right down the street from, from where I sit right now was a studio for since the 50s. You know, and, and James Brown recorded Papa's Got a Brand New Bag right there. Oh, that's amazing. And Johnny Cash did Ring of Fire there. And, <clears throat> and then, you know, the, uh, another studio across town, you know, R.E.M. did their records there. Mm -hmm. And uh, just tons, tons of people, you know. And... Um, so I got to uh, know there's one guy that really helped me out, his name, his producer, his name's Don Dixon. And uh, I've done, I don't know how many hundreds of records for him. But before I hooked up with him, uh, I got a full-time job in the studio as, as a player. I'd take everything that came through the door. And I did, I did a record for Jeannie C. Riley. I did one for Oliver. I don't know if you remember Oliver, but he had that hit, uh, Good Morning Starshine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, I did Brooke Benton's big Christmas record. And uh, 
there was, I don't know. I probably, within two years, I guess, when I was doing that, uh, you know, I made a couple hundred records. That's amazing. Yeah. And so that was helping, you know. And then I hooked up with Don Dixon. And so he started hiring me for all kinds of things. And, and, uh, cause you know, he, uh, he's produced many records like REM, and, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I hooked up with Janice because he's, uh, he was producing a record for Marty Jones <clears throat> and she was recording a song that Janice wrote and they needed a piano player. So they says, well, let's just bring Janice in to play it. You know, she already knows it. <laughs> she wrote it. So, yeah. So, uh, that's when I met her the first time. And then we did a gig together when, when Marty's record came out at the bottom line in New York, we did, did a show to kick off her new record and all the different writers were on the show. John Hyatt, you know, was on the show. Yeah. You know, so I was the guy that played back to all these artists up. And then I get a call from Janice one time, one day, and she says, uh, I'm getting ready to tour. You want to be my drummer? Sure. Yeah. I'd love to, you know? Yeah. uh, It's funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah. It was (laughs) one thing led to another. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be a common theme. And I I mean, that applies so as much today as, as, as it did ever. Um, is is just being yeah. being there, allowing people to see and hear you, uh, uh, yeah. and, and find out who you are as a person. Uh, yeah, leads to that. You know, one thing I learned is there's a lot of really really good players in the world, mm-hmm. but people hire who they like and can stand to be around every day. <laughs> Does that make it, that make sense? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, so I just made sure that when I got called for something, uh, I gave it my best. I was up on it. Uh, nobody ever had to wait on me mm. for anything, you know, and, uh, I just made, made sure that it was fun for the artist. Did you ever get any direction from uh, people like Janice or Kathy or anybody, uh, you know, or were you left kind of on your own to create and both? Both. I mean, Janice always had clear ideas of what she wanted, and she was the one that in my in my career that made me stretch the most interesting yeah do you have an example of that of what a moment that that happened well there are many moments okay <laughs> <laughs> she'd go hey brock that beat you're playing she says i really like it can you 
can you turn it, can you flip it around? I'm going, uh, yeah, sure I can. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I kind of took a guess of what she was trying to say, and then she goes, yep, that's it. So Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's great. That's great. And 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 I think there's so often that, that people give this uh, direction that doesn't always have a. You have to interpret everything that people say. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, you you you've mentioned before in in articles and and other things that like rhythm is is something that goes beyond music and dance it it's it's in uh without rhythm there is no life um could you talk a little bit about this idea this this concept of rhythm that maybe is something that a lot of us haven't really considered well i've heard people my all my life going no man i don't have any rhythm you know, uh, man, you're great. Wish I had rhythm. And, uh, and, you know, and then sometimes I, uh, let it go. Sometimes I said, what are you talking about? You're, you're talking, aren't you? Yeah. You have to have a rhythm to speak. Mm-hmm. You walked over here. That took rhythm, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the earth is built around it and, you know, the seasons come the same every year. Yeah. The sun rises and sets every day. Yeah. yeah. It's it's in all things. I think uh, tides and the sound of the ocean is, is an example of something that is so rhythmic that we made a drum that imitated that sound yeah Yeah. Uh, if if we want to you know make a hard connection to uh this thing that that you're speaking about yeah for sure you know you don't you don't really hear it but you know there's a drum inside your chest (laughs) yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah and is there an aspect of your life that that you're you're spending some time exploring these concepts, or, or you know, uh, find it as a way to stay healthy in a in a spiritual sense, um, or any type of practice that's a part of your routine? Uh, it's called listening, yeah, and being aware of things that most people don't even think about. Yeah. But it's mostly just listening to okay. the around you. Mm-hmm. Listening to your world around that's around you. you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told a person the other day, I go, you can go to New York City and stand on the street corner, close your eyes, and there's a symphony happening. Yeah. With cars and Jackhammers and, you know, it's not necessarily noise. It's, it's your take on it. Yeah. You know? Well, one of, the, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is, is where do you see, well, the future of music and creation of music going? 
with the advent of uh, technology allowing us to, to use samples and um, all these things, do you feel like the skills of somebody that has a has a broad understanding of music and drums and percussion and rhythm is is less valuable these days or more valuable or is wh- where do you see all this going uh down the tubes <laughs> okay if, if i can be so blunt please 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 uh, you know i mean every generation has thinks theirs is the best you know you know my dad you know, when I'm when I was a kid and I was listening to the Who, you know, I'm sure he thought, you know, Glenn Miller was the deal, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and he was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not big on electronics. You know, I mean, find you know, I would find a way to. If that's the sound that I hear in my head, I'll find a way acoustically to make it happen. Yeah. And because the box doesn't have a soul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, you know, it's not the perfection of a performance that people like. They want to feel something. Yes. You know, so mistakes aren't that big of a deal, really, as long as you're making the listener feel something emotionally, you know. Right. I think when when you start programming, you're you're losing a lot of that, Uh you know. And I think as a working musician you have to make that connection with the person you're working with as well. I mean, there's, I know what you're saying with the, with the audience for sure. But as a, as a working musician, working drummer, you, you need to make that connection with the person you're recording with, you're with your, you're performing with, and you're back there with a couple pads. Um, even on stage, um, maybe they're not even feeling it as much as when you're recreating those sounds acoustically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, that's the thing that has always kept me working was heart, as far as I can tell, you know, in the heart, in my in my playing and stuff, you know, in... I look back at, at uh, years ago, <clears throat> there's never click tracks. Mm-hmm. You might you might see a click track if you're doing a commercial, you know, because it has to be exactly so many seconds long, you know, so you find out where the tempo is. And, of course, the only click track was the old Seth Thomas one that was on your grandmother's piano that you wind up, and then they would... Put it in a closet and with a mic on it, you know. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. Okay, <laughs> but if everybody in the band has really, really good time, you don't need that. It, it, because you may want that chorus to lift ever so slightly mm-hmm. for emotion, you know. Yeah, then I'm not talking. 
10 BPMs or anything, but just, you know, just a half a, half a beat faster. Right. Just make it lift, you know, or just settle back down. And I hear a lot of that is gone. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) On the, um, on the, on the Amy Ray record, did you guys use a click on that? Yes. Yeah. Did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not in charge of that. So. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I I asked that. Um, <laughs> I saw that. Uh, and, and listened to that recently, and um, I'm a fan of hers for sure. And so I was like, oh, that's what that's that's great. And so I really enjoy that recording. I don't remember the name of the, the album. It came out. It came out in 2019. Or Taller. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what the new one's called yet. Uh, they're still in the mix mode. Which one? Say that again. The new one. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't. I don't know what it's called. But uh, Holler was the one before this one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And are you on this new one? Yeah. With yeah. is it just Amy Ray or is it both the Indigo Girls? Oh, it's. Uh, no, Emily's not on it, but it's um, it's got a lot of people on it. Sarah Jaros, you know, some of uh, Tedeschi Trucks. Oh, cool. And, yeah. Okay. And, uh, oh, yeah, she brings in great, great people, you know. Did did Gabe Dixon play keyboard songs? Do you know him? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. On, on uh, one song, I think. Okay. Yeah. Dan Walker is is the actual guy, piano and keyboard guy. He uh, plays with heart, you know, but he he tours with us. And stuff. That's amazing. Well, what's yeah. the what's the rest of your year look like, man? Oh, it's starting to come back a little bit, you know, after COVID. Yeah. Um, COVID's still here, but um, I got some dates with Amy... In May, no place far, but uh, she's saving it for when her record comes out. That's great. Uh, she's the hardest working person in this business that I personally know. She does not take a break. And, uh, you know, the girls work all the time. Yeah. And then when Emily wants to take a break, then... Amy puts her band together. <laughs> oh yeah, she's uh, she's hardcore. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. and what are you playing on this on this? If when you go out with her, do you know what's your role there? It's Kit. Okay. For the most part, this new record might be have some other things happening, but the last two records of hers that I did, Kit. Okay. Know. Sorry, I keep I keep thinking of other things, but there was a there's a great story of you uh, splitting a kit with Steve Gad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh man, uh, the record was called Revenge. It was Janicean record, and Steve's playing drums, and uh, me and Sarah uh, Batista are playing percussion because mm-hmm. she wanted it real. A lot of percussion. So, uh, and there's one thing that I would do 
one of my weird things, and she wanted that rhythm. And uh, I said, well, I don't know how to do it without me playing, you know, this drum and that drum and everything. So I played it for Steve so he could hear it. So he joined in. He would, I think he played, he played the kick in the hat and I think I had the floor tom. So he had the rack tom. <laughs> and yeah, so, and so we imitated that, that groove of mine between the two of us. That's really amazing. Yeah. And yeah. It was, Steve's just, you know, he's a great guy. And he just loved doing something like that, you know? Yeah. The great thing about Steve is he, he doesn't know who he is. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we'd finish a take and he'd look at me and go, is that okay? Oh my. <laughs> Wait, yeah, what? I go, what are you talking about? You'll get it, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. Just keep practicing, Steve. Yeah, just, yeah. You'll get it next time. Don't worry about it. Can you recall what record that was? Yeah, it's called Revenge. Revenge? Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, you, the, okay, you mentioned the, that. The name of this, that particular song is, escapes me right now. But, uh, well, all the more reason just to put the whole record on. Check yeah. that out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Willie Weeks was playing bass. Oh, cool. Yeah, 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 for sure. The cool thing about being a percussionist for me, uh, besides being a trap drummer, is I've I've got to play with some really, really great drummers, you know, like Steve. And, uh, you know, I did a record and Alex Acuna's playing drums. That was a little unnerving, <laughs> being a percussionist. With Alex Acuna, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Robbie Amin, I did a record with him. And, uh, of course, Joe Vitale. Vitale played the, the wall stuff because he's been with Joe forever. And, uh, you know, Denny Fongheiser, I've made a bunch of records with him. Okay. And, of course, Mel Lewis, you know, Mel was like my dad. <laughs> really? You really? So you? Uh, I didn't know about this. You worked with Mel. I was on a session. I was on a Glenn Miller session. It was Glenn Miller's style of pop tunes, right? Mm -hmm. And they did one Latin number, so I got hired to do that. And uh, you know, Mel and I, Mel and I, you know, we became great friends and. I had just put my first record out. And um, so I gave him a cassette of it. And uh, he took it back to the, you know, and I could tell it was like, oh, yeah, thanks, kid. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, he took it back to, to his hotel and he, and he listened to it and he flipped out over it. And he got me my first modern drummer interview. Oh wow. He set up he set up all kinds of radio interviews for me in New York and you know, he really, really liked it a lot. That one moment when the person actually took your music and you know, we, there's so many stories of people say, Here's my C D, here's my record, whatever 
and you 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 try and get people to listen to it, you never know. And and this this actually worked. Yeah. Yeah. And and he also liked the fact that I had the calf skin on my snare drum. <laughs> That's cool, man. Jim, this has been fun, man. I, I really appreciate you you speaking oh. to us about this stuff and 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 just all your knowledge, sharing your knowledge with us and and history. It's 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 really nice to meet you and and kind of become more familiar well, with 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 what you've got going on. I'm a fan of what you do, and I'm honored that you asked me to do it. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you. Well, and again, what a small world that you grew up in the same town my father grew up in, a, a very small town, but... I know, that's so bizarre. Yeah. That's great. But I, I, I hope it's inspirational for people that just want to go find and follow their muse and... and Figured out what is what it is that they want to do, uh, no matter where they're from, no matter where they're living and, and growing yeah. up. I read somewhere where it's less than two percent of people on the earth that follow their passion. That's and insane. I get a I get a lot of fathers of young guys that want to be a drummer, so they'll ask me about it and stuff, and I said, well, you know. And then they said, well, you know, I'd like for him to, you know, I mean, going to school and everything is great, you know, but they want him to have backup plan. Yeah. And I said, that'll kill him. It'll kill you every time. Yeah. Because the success comes from you believing in yourself enough to stick out the hard times. My theory was I'm a professional drummer. And if I take another job, I'm not. Wow. Yeah, I, I stuck it out, and and you got to, you have to do that if that's what you want your life to be, then you got to make it so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. You can't be a professional drummer, and I mean, you can play on the weekends if you work at the bank, but you're not. That's not a career. That's a hobby. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to that. It's really, it's really interesting just to kind of hear how it all comes together, depending on what your life is like, but, uh, but I think at a, at a certain point in your life, if you want to make this your career, you need to put more into it. You know, I can't think of another job that I could have that would have taken me around the world a few times and, you know, I've seen the planet and on my terms, you know, because of what I do and, and I'm still doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love it, man. I'll keep in touch with you, man. I'd be be nice to see you perform uh, uh, in in person. You know, uh, yeah. again, I'm, I'm a big Amy Ray fan, and um, thanks to Lee Kelly for uh, connecting us, and uh, thanks for your time and sharing all this great oh, information with us. For your time, yeah, man, yeah, it's great. Yeah. But man, I will I will be in touch, man. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you. Man. Thanks, Jim. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So there you go, my conversation with Jim Brock. What a trip that he grew up in the same small town that my father mostly grew up in and I spent a lot of time in as a child. So uh, it was fun to meet him and dig into his fascinating history of uh, carving out a career as a percussionist and drummer in this crazy business. 
Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Danny Paschal. Danny is based out of Atlanta and is mostly known as a rock metal drummer. He's played with Brent Hines from Mastodon, Emil Wurstler, and many others. So stay tuned for that. For now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Stay safe, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.